Before you're seated, would you grab your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, I want to read this, uh, and then we'll get into Habakkuk. But just want to remind us of the backdrop of what we've been studying, what they kind of know is coming and happening. Jeremiah 25. We're about to do something that most people on the planet today are going to miss. We're about to hear the sacred text that's come from the very heart of God that he had people write down for us to preserve for us. It's a text that will last for all of the future eternity. God lasts forever. His people will last forever and his word will stand as well. So what we're about to read here is really, really significant. So the reason that Habakkuk knows that the Chaldean people are coming because he was alive and was a contemporary with Jeremiah who had already spoken the words we're about to hear here. So they, they kind of know what's coming. And so that's why Habakkuk, when he speaks with God, he's wrestling with this as well. And so I just want to remind us of kind of the context of what we're going to do when we get to Habakkuk 3. So Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 8. Look at the detail that God knows all things. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all of the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. So Judah's going to go away. They will be gone away for seventy years. 12, then after the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make them slaves, even of them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So Habakkuk has been wrestling with, um, you can use this at work tomorrow. I'm going to help you be smarter. I'm going to give you a big Bible word, okay? He's been wrestling with something that's called theodicy. And what theodicy is this, it's wrestling with the question of how can a holy and just God allow evil and injustice to exist. And so that subject matter is called theodicy. So he's been wrestling with that. He has also been struggling with why does it seem that God is just allowing evil to continue on? And it doesn't seem as if God is engaging with the world and he just seems to be remaining silent when there is so much wrong around us and he's wondering what God is up to. That's all in chapter one and he's wrestling that. And so as we near the end of this, important book. I want to give you 
kind of six summary principles. We're going to put them up on the screen real quick. And the first one is this. Chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 3. God is sharing with Habakkuk, and he's coming to a place of understanding, is that ultimately God and his righteousness, they will triumph. Though we see lots of evil around us, God and his righteousness ultimately is going to triumph. And yet, in chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of the chapter, Habakkuk is also coming to a place of understanding this from God speaking with him, is that though God's going to use the Chaldean people to bring judgment upon Judah, within the Chaldean people, within Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, within the wicked and the evil, are ultimately the seeds of their eventual destruction. So what I mean by that is this. We just read it there in Jeremiah 25, that God was eventually going to, after he uses the Chaldeans, what is he going to do to the Chaldeans? He's going to bring his judgment upon them, for what they did and the way that they were. This is the case with the world as well. I shared this last week, but just remind us this morning, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins, um, the Putins, history will continue to have men like this, leaders like this, who will continue to bring destruction upon the world. But ultimately, we know this to be true, is that God is going to bring justice where great injustice has been poured out from people like that. And so this is going to be the case. And so within the evil of the world and with those who carry this out are the seeds of their eventual destruction. So in the midst of that, how do God's people live? And so we saw that the third principle is in chapter 2, verse 4, that in the midst of that, the righteous have to live by faith. They live by faith. Though the world is raging and a number of things, the righteous live by faith. And eventually, let's hear some amens, okay? Are y'all ready? I'm preparing you ahead of time. Jesus Christ is returning again. And when he comes, he will establish his kingdom. And when he establishes his kingdom here, the whole earth will be full of the glory of God. Right now in 2022, there are still estimated 6,000 people, groups, languages, and tribes that still do not have a gospel witness. They don't know about Jesus. So the charge of the church is to continue to try to get the gospel to these people. But eventually when Christ comes back and he sets up his kingdom, there will not be literally a place on the planet that you can go to that doesn't know about the glory of God. So, so he shares in chapter 2, verse 14, that when Christ comes again, he will establish his kingdom and the whole earth will be full of his glory as the waters cover the seas. We closed last week by looking at verse 20 of chapter 2, where God shares with Habakkuk and God is speaking and he says this, I am in my temple, so therefore earth, you need to be silent before me. That also included what Habakkuk had been doing. He'd been questioning God's judgment, questioning God's goodness, wondering if God was really concerned about anything. And so Habakkuk needed to be silent. The world needed to be silent because God still reigns in his temple. He is acquainted with what's going on. And he's sovereignly still in charge of everything. And so what we will see today and next week when we finish out this wonderful prophetic book that is 2,600 years old, these incredible principles that we've learned for our life, 
that was if it could have been written yesterday and come to us fresh off the press. Just so important things for us to see here is that Habakkuk in chapter 3, the theme is this, is that the sovereignty of God is enough for his people to have security and rest in who God is. So those are kind of the six dominating themes that come through the text. Living with a God-centered focus, this is under the idea of the sovereignty of God is enough. When we live with a God-centered focus and we realize that the Lord is in his temple, he is reigning, he is ruling, we can trust him, it enables us to, to be able to be quiet, to have a heart of worship for God, and to walk in obedience with him. And to know this, that God is active, God is doing things. The world is full of prideful, puffed up people who establish paths where man is the center of life. The righteous live by faith where God is the center of their lives. And so those two things are happening all day long. People are walking in their own path, puffed up by their pride, their own intellect, their own power, their own authority, whatever the case may be. But we as God's people are walking by faith, knowing that God is the center of everything. And so therefore, we fully trust him in every kind of way. So here's where Habakkuk has come to. In chapter 1, he's like, God, I'm crying out to you. Do you not see what's going on in Judah? Where our land just permeated with sin. Now we know from Jeremiah that the Chaldean people are coming. And God, I, I'm wrestling with this. I know wickedness is, is, fills the land of Judah. It's all around me. God, I see it day after day. I see the injustice. But God, how in the world can you bring a people more wicked than Judah to come in here and to bring your judgment upon us? And he is wrestling and wrestling and wrestling. And so God begins to answer his questions. He begins to address things. As we come to chapter 3, Habakkuk comes full circle. And this is really important today. I say this not all the time, but 50% of the time. We are not to ask God to adjust to our agenda. We are always to adjust our lives to God's agenda and to God's word. So we're going to see in chapter 3 here that Habakkuk has come to a place where he's going to be silent now. And he's going to embrace what God has established, what God is saying. And he will make the adjustment because he knows this, the sovereignty of God is enough for his life. As we read the scriptures, we will come to places always that are incredibly applicable to so many of the important issues that we face in our lives. And they also address some of the prevailing teachings that seem to permeate our American Christian culture. Take, for instance, the false gospel called the prosperity gospel. That says if our faith is balanced enough, that if we love Jesus enough, that if our faith is full enough, balanced enough, passionate enough, we will not encounter sickness. We'll have a lot of money in the bank account. We will only live in the blessings of God. You know what Habakkuk would say about that false gospel? He'd spit on it. He would say, what a, what a ridiculous notion Because there was still a remnant in Judah, like Habakkuk and Jeremiah, that loved God. And they walked with God. And they are all going to have to walk through what God is about to do. 
So this idea that if we love God, then things are always going to go well for us. We've lived long enough, hopefully, to know that that is ridiculous. Just a ridiculous idea. And yet we have lived long enough to know this, that we can love God and live in the blessings of God even when the hardest of things enters into our lives. And the reason is, is in the hard days, in the hard moments, God makes himself so freshly known to us and so powerful that the might of his arm sustains us and carries us through. So we're going to encounter a little bit more of that today. So let's begin to walk through this. And I'm going to, I didn't read it a while ago. Go to Habakkuk 3 if you're not there yet. And we're going to go through verse 16 today. And I want to talk first of all this morning about how do we pray for revival? How do we pray for awakening in the land? So look with me. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. So he moves from complaining to praying now. So a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. I do fear or do I fear, it says. In the midst of the years, Lord, revive it. The report of you, your work, in the midst of the years, Lord, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, God, remember mercy. So again, let me just remind us just briefly. In the beginning of the book, we saw the real struggle that Habakkuk was having. He knew the truth about God, and yet he was looking around at his culture. Now he knows the word that God has spoken through Jeremiah, and he realizes that he's got a kind of conflict in his heart. God's going to use the Babylonian or the Chaldean knife to, to do a work within the people of God. He's going to discipline Judah. Everywhere Habakkuk looked, he saw immorality. He saw weak leadership. He saw injustice and idolatry and violence. Habakkuk loved God. But what God was going to do didn't do this. this, this all of us, we have this if we're not careful. Pretend like I've got a box up here. On the front of the box, it just says God box. We all have a God box where we, we put God in the box of, of who God is and what God does. And when he does something outside of our God box, we don't know what to do. We, we're not to have a God box, by the way. We're, God, God, is, God can't fit inside a box. He's large. He's big. His ways are different from ours. But Habakkuk can't understand it. He's got a God box. And to use the Chaldean people and the knife of the Chaldean people upon God's people, he wrestles with it and he doesn't understand it. And so he knows that he must trust God and yet he's wrestling with trusting God. And so he needs a new resolve and he needs a new perspective. And he comes to that place in chapter 3. He is no longer going to complain. He is no longer going to question God. He's now going to come to the place where he's going to trust God what God is saying. And in this new attitude, he is ready for what God wants to do in him and what God's going to do with him and in the nation. And as we have seen in these weeks, Habakkuk knows that judgment is coming and that there's going to be no escape from what is coming. So in light of that, he makes a significant switch in his view of the setting and what's happening. He stops fighting 
He stops challenging God with his intellectual questions. And he takes the right posture of yielding to the Lord and embracing God's plan for Judah, no matter what may come. He has come to the place where we all must come to in our lives, where we embrace what God says, and we embrace it as our very own, that it becomes the way in which we live. And so instead of complaining and arguing, he now comes to the place where he recognizes, I've got to, I've got to pray again. He was praying in the beginning in chapter 1, but it was a prayer of complaint. Now he's going to come to a place where he's going to pray, and it's going to be a prayer of faith. You see, everything changes. When you and I hear from the Lord, and we set our mind on what God says, and it becomes the pathway for our lives. All of us need this. Now, when we have things happen in our lives, I'm going to kind of take a different angle than I did last week. Habakkuk is trying to come to the place of a biblical understanding, and now he gets to it. Sometimes in our lives, we see what God's doing, and the pathway that God's going to lead us to, we can see He's going to lead us through a season of challenge. One of the most often um, challenges that we go through are health issues, like lingering things where we are really having to cry out to God about some certain things. Sometimes a second really popular one for Christians is really going through relationship issues, maybe particularly marriage issues, and, and it's just a difficult season, and it's lasting, and there's a lot of crying out to God and asking for God to help. And, and when we go through these seasons of pain and wrestling with things, we will respond in three ways. One way is we will resign ourselves to not seek the Lord anymore, and many people do that. What God's going to bring me through, what God's got me in right now, it's just too much, and so I'm just going to resign myself to kind of, kind of give up, and I'm not going to seek the Lord anymore. When people get into this season, they also begin to think this. They don't think that sin is that big of a deal um, around them. Other people are pursuing God, and they're concerned about righteousness and holiness, and they kind of look at those people and just go, God, you need to calm down a little bit. Sin is not that big a deal, and they begin to drift. Those that, that resign themselves began to do that. And Habakkuk didn't resign himself knowing what was coming. A second thing is not only do people resign themselves, but then a lot of times people remove themselves from the community of faith. Detaching their life from all relationships and what they have known and, and avoiding maybe what is coming and maybe, maybe what they're going to have to deal with and face in their own lives in regard to truth, and people do this in a number of different ways, where they wake up on a Sunday morning and just go, man, I'm just, this trial is just too tough, and it's not worth it to go and gather with God's people anymore, and so they stop attending church, or they start a new priority that takes precedent of being around God's people and pursuing God even during the week. These Christians then begin to just fill their lives with busyness and misplaced priorities, and listen to this, though they think that they are escaping, they are just setting up a new self-centered focus of their lives that is void of God's people, void of coming in here. Let's face it, can we be honest? We can be honest, right? Sometimes I don't want to come to church on a Sunday morning. We can all relate to that. This morning, it was dark. 
I love rain. I love hearing the storms and the wind, and it feels good to lay under the covers longer. But every time I come, whether it's to a life group, Wednesday night with the students, or I come here, I am always reminded how much I need to be with God's people. And so if you're one who removes yourself and hides away, I want to encourage you to not do that. So people, some people resign themselves and just check out. Some people remove themselves from everything and they just create a new version of a self-centeredness by being alone and it's a new treadmill to run upon. I hate treadmills. A lot of work staying in the same place, getting nowhere. And that's what people do a lot. Here's the third option and honestly the only option is run after God even when trouble comes. And that's what Habakkuk does. Early on, he resigns himself in a sense of, God, I've been crying out to you and you don't listen to me. You're not listening to me. Do you not see the immorality? Do you not see how bad the Chaldean people are? And he's wrestling there. He probably wrestled with removing himself in a sense. He kind of does that. Remember, he goes up to the watchtower. Now, he goes up there, I think, to wait, but he, he's also having a pity party if you'll read chapter 1 and 2. He's feeling sorry for himself of what is happening taking place. And now he gets to chapter 3, and he makes this, I am going to run after God. That's going to be what I'm going to do in my life. And so chapter 3 becomes a song. It's called a shigianoth. That's a great word, is that not? A great word. This is a word... There was a song, it was a poem, but it was an intense prayer song that they were to sing. So as we walk through chapter 3 here, it was to be put to music, and the people of God would begin to sing this song. So I would imagine when they went to Babylon, and they're under Nebuchadnezzar's leadership, somebody put this to music, and so in their exile, they would sing Habakkuk chapter 3 that we know that. This would, this would be songs of their sojourning. Songs of their time away when God sent them away. And it would remind them that there's a future and a hope that is connected to even though the judgment of God is going to come, God's going to restore the people of God again. By the way, let me just say this this morning. This is a chapter 3 an intense prayer to be sung by the people of God. God's people should sing. And they should be intense about it. Now, I'm not talking about yelling and screaming. I'm just talking about that there's an intensity to our singing where our heart and our mind is centered on the glory of God and we are focused. Can mean shouting. It can mean just standing there like this or lifting our hands or bowing on our face. There is to be an intensity of our prayer life and our singing life and worship and praising and exalting God life that has some intensity to it. There's a problem with our faith if there's never an intensity to our faith. There should be a passion to our faith. And so Habakkuk gets to that place and 
and he realizes some incredible things about him. And his first seeing thing here is, is he remembers who God is. He comes back to that place. I want to give three principles that are connected to revival praying. And I'm just going to offend you right now. Are you all ready? I'm really not. But I am going to challenge you about something. If you're traveling out of town this week for work, you're excused. But everybody else should be up here this week praying. This is our week of prayer. So you need to figure out how to get up here this week. And when you get up here, there'll be stations all over this room for you to pray and to seek the Lord. And then I want to ask you, and I haven't told Mark this, but I want to somehow put these principles, Mark, somewhere this up here that we would pray these things. What Habakkuk is praying now and what he's praying here are three critical prayer principles about awakening and revival. Okay, did y'all survive that? Did I hurt your feelings too bad? Okay. Get up here and pray for our church, commune with God, and pray for our nation, and pray for the brokenness that is all around us. Here's the first principle. We are to be people who pray with our minds centered on the nature of God and the work of God. So as he begins to to pray this prayer that's going to become a song, look what he says in the first part of verse 2. He says, Oh Lord, I have heard the report about who you are. I've heard about what you're going to do. You have spoken to me. You have spoken to Jeremiah. You have spoken to Moses. I have heard the report of who you are. And I have heard now also the work of what you are going to do and the work that you have done. So when we pray, we always are to pray in this way. Oh Lord, Jesus taught us this, by the way. When you pray, the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? And he said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Oh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we pray, the first principle of prayer is we center our mind and our heart on who God is. And that's what Habakkuk does here. He says, Lord, I've heard about you. You see, revival begins, awakening begins in the believer's heart. And when God reawakens us again to the truth, it's been said, and I agree with it, that when revival and awakening comes, we are re-bibled again. We are connected back to the Scripture. Re-bibled. Did you get that? Okay, I don't know if you got that or not. We are re-bibled. We are reconnected with the truth of the Scripture and a desire to walk in obedience. So Habakkuk comes to the place where he realizes, I can't complain anymore. I've got to trust what God's doing. God is good. And so therefore, I'm going to, I, I'm going to say to the Lord, Lord, I know about who you are. And I know about what you do. And there's nothing that you will do that will not be for the benefit of your people. And while I have wrestled with what you're going to do, I'm now at a place where, Lord, I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to center my heart. I'm going to center my mind on who you are and the work that you are going to do. Here's the second principle that is to be connected with the kind of prayer that prays for awakening for our own life, for a nation, 
There should be a God-centered fear in our lives of who he is and what he does. This is where Habakkuk has been wrestling. He's afraid of what God's going to do with the Chaldean knife upon Judah. So he says there in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Twice, O Lord, is there. I fear. And in the midst of the years, he says, revive it. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So during these days of the prophet's life, both Israel and Judah, listen to this. We do this. We're, we're like them. So the Chaldean people are marching, just gobbling up nations, getting more powerful. And you know what the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah do? They don't cry out to God. You know what they do? They try to get alliances with the, with the king of Assyria and the king of Egypt, other nations, instead of God. By the way, let me just remind us this morning with the election coming up, there is not a full political solution to the issues of our country. Only the cross can fix our country. So that's why we pray differently. We want godly leaders and godly leadership. But there's never been a political solution to the sin problem of the world. If that was the case, then this was not necessary. The cross is the answer to everything. So they're looking to Assyria. They're looking to Egypt to help them. And Habakkuk comes to the place now where he's like, no, I'm going to pray to God. And I, I, I haven't, this word fear is not like I'm scared of, Scary pumpkins or whatever the case may be today was scary pumpkin land time right now in, in our country. To fear God means this. I have such awe and, and an honor for God that I'm going to live differently. And that kind of fear can bring us to our knees. Now, I think he's fearful of, of the knife of the Chaldean people. But he's now gotten to a place where there's a fear and all of who God is, that God's going to do this, and God is still worthy to be trusted. And so this is where he is. When we pray for revival, we need to be the kind of people who pray with an awe-inspired recognition of the glory of who God is and the glory of what God does. And so, so that's where he is. And so he recognizes, I, I, I've heard of you. I've heard of who you are. I know about what you do, and Lord, that brings an awe in my life about who you are and what you do. And thirdly, it's this, now he begins to pray about something that's different. Now his situation may be a little bit different than our situation in our generation today. We don't fully know the future of America. We don't fully know what's going to happen. They knew their future. Nebuchadnezzar's coming. The Chaldean people are going to come. They know they're going to go away for 70 years. They know their future. So watch this. This is really significant. And as we pray this week, I pray that we would have this kind of prayer. So he knows. Listen how significant this this 
this mindset of prayer he has here. He knows that in his lifetime, Habakkuk is not going to see awakening. He's not going to see it. He's just going to see judgment. He will not live through, probably because of his age, the 70 years of captivity. And so I want you to note this. He begins to pray about the awakening of God's people that will come 70 years in the future. And he begins to pray for the awakening of God's people when they're gone for 70 years and they come back. So with that in mind, look with me again. Verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, and do I fear. In the midst of those years, God, revive it, awaken, awaken, God. People's understanding of who you are and your work. In the midst of the years, make it known. Make, make, make people know the stories of our faith. And then in wrath, God, remember mercy. Here's the third principle. We must pray and long for God to revive and to make known the new work regardless of whether it happens in our lifetime or not. So let me make a proposal this morning for us to think about. What if in the chaos of our American culture that is continuing to crumble and become more insane by the week... What if we are never, we in our lifetime, are ever going to see an awakening? I'm talking about adults. But what if we could become the generation that sows the seeds of prayer for awakening in future generations? Are we willing to be the kind of people that will pray out and cry out to God for the rest of our lives, whether we see revival or awakening in our lifetime? that we long for it to come in future generations. And that's what Habakkuk is praying for here. He's going to have to go through the Chaldean knife. And so he's like, Lord, when we go away, and in the future years when people come back, will you revive their understanding of who you are and how you work and what you do. And this was the passionate prayer of him. He says, Lord, reveal yourself in future generations of your power, of your promises, of your glory and your strength. And in the years of your people who will come back to this land after we have gone away for 70 years, will they cling to the promise that you have made that you have not forgotten your people but you will be with your people. He's like, Lord, make it known again that you are the God of the people and they will taste it and they will see it and they will walk in it. And so now his prayer changes differently. He knows it's what's coming. And so he says this, in the last part of verse 2 he says, and so God, I'm praying this, that in your wrath, when you bring the judgment with the Chaldean people, will you also in the midst of your wrath extend mercy to your people? So we know some of the hardest days in their history are going to come where devastating atrocities are going to be wrought upon the people in the cities. 
The Babylonians were brutal, brutal people. They were going to bring their brand of brutality upon Judah. And so knowing this to be true, he cries out to God now in this prayer of revival. And he knows this, God, I know that you are good. And I'm praying this, that in the midst of your wrath, I know you must bring judgment. But Lord, will you remember mercy in the midst of that as well? And he will accept the strong discipline that God is going to bring that is indeed coming. But he also pleads for the mercy that comes with that. By the way, God has always, if you'll read the Old Testament, that in his judgment he has remembered mercy. So let me give you some examples. In wrath he punished Judah, but in mercy he preserved a remnant in those 70 years to come back to rebuild the nation again, to have a God-centered focus again. In wrath he sent Judah away, and yet there was a promise that was made in their going away that in mercy he would send his son to them eventually. In wrath, they would live under dictators. But yet, in mercy, under one of those dictators, so eventually what happens is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son takes over for him. His son is awful, terrible. Uh, One night, full of pride, God just basically takes away his kingdom, and the Persians take over. It's like happens one night, it's done with. The Babylonian power is over with. The Persians come over, and then a lot of the people are taken from Babylon now to Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and there eventually becomes a king in Persia by the name of Cyrus. He's a dictator. But watch how God acts in mercy. you know what this dictator does? He begins to allow them to go back to the promised land at about the 75-year mark from when Habakkuk is speaking here. And you know what that wicked tyrant king does? He pays for the whole rebuilding of Judah. So in mercy, he sent them away, or in wrath, he sent them away, and yet in mercy, he uses his king Cyrus to pay for the whole rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus, God moved in him to gather riches and all this stuff to rebuild. In wrath, God punishes blatant sin among his people, and yet in mercy, God offers the hope of salvation through the blood of his son. So as Habakkuk prays here, he says, Lord, I know you've got to bring judgment, but in the midst of your judgment, will you bring mercy? And I'm telling you, he is, and he will. It is who he is. It's who he is. In wrath, God will bring the world to its knees in the last days. In mercy, he will return and establish a kingdom where his glory fills every corner of the planet. One last thing on this point here. We are to know our history of the church. So Habakkuk is praying, Lord, when they return... Will you revive their understanding of you and how you work in the years to come? Lord, will you do this? This is really important. This becomes the basis of his confidence that God had revived them in the past 
and he, he will do it again in the future. And so because of their history, he knows that God is alive and about certain things and he will do this. We ought to know our church history. We ought to know our history. Now I'm going to say something else that might offend you. Because I hear people say, well, I don't like history. Get over your not liking history and like history. We have... Listen, if we don't... Habakkuk's prayer was this. That when they returned, what did he want to see happen in the nation again? That they would tell the stories of God's work in the promised land. That they would tell those stories of what God did. Now, while they were gone in 70 years of exile, God worked. You ever read the book of Daniel, Esther? All of that was taking place outside of the promised land. God was at work. He was alive. So he pleads for mercy in the midst of God's wrath. Now we're going to read a lot. And I want to talk about the glory of God here as we begin to move toward the end here. Verse 3. He praises now, praises God. He's, he's recounting the history of God's work from among them. And he praises the nature of God who draws near to his, near to his people. Look at verse 3 and 4. God came from Taman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah is a word that just means pause and reflect. So he says, pause and reflect about this. That God came and He came to Egypt when they were in bondage for all of those hundreds of years. His splendor covered the heavens. And the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like a light. Rays flashed from His hands. And there He veiled His power. And so now Habakkuk in this song that he's writing, this intense prayer, he's praising the one who brings the awakening. And so God has granted him a fresh vision of God's past work. So when it says that God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Taman was a grandson of Esau. And he was also, it was also an Edomite city. Mount Paran was located in the Sinai Peninsula. So as they left Egypt, as they left, those places were to the east of God's people. So as he's leading them by the pillar of fire and the cloud by day, those places were to the east of God's people as they marched out of Egypt. And he's, he's saying this there. Both, both of these places saw that God was revealing himself, that God was with his people, and he was revealing that he was a God of great power. So he goes back and he thinks of Taman and Mount Paran and the Holy One had, had come and he was moving and God comes to his people. He comes, he came to the Israelites, he came to us in Christ, he is coming again and he comes and when he comes, he comes in his splendor, his splendor of heaven and the glory of who he is and he brings it among his people to awaken them. And as he came, the earth, the text says here, was full of his praise. The people that had been in bondage for 400 years are now being led out by God himself. And his presence was like the, the awakening of the morning when the, when the sun just peeks over the horizon and the light comes. There's a New Testament picture here that I think is important when you, you look at this as he's praising about the nature of God um, throughout history who had come to them in Egypt. The one who gave the law on Mount Sinai is the same one who spoke the sermon on the mount in Matthew 5 through 7. 
The one who revealed himself to Moses is seen as the glorious one on the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament in Matthew 17. The one who gave the law at Sinai is the one who came and was born under the law and yet redeems those who are under the curse of the law. The one who gave the instructions and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament is the one who put a final end to them by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. And the one whose glory appeared in fire and lightning on Mount Sinai is now the one in whom the gospel and the glory of the gospel shines forth from his face so that we can behold the glory and the wonder of who he is in 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 18, and so he, he just begins to praise that God had come to his people to draw them out. Now look at verse 5. Before him as he walked went pestilence. Plague followed at his heels. Verse 6, when he stood and he measured the earth, he looked at the earth and it shook the nations. And then the eternal mountains, they were just scattered. The everlasting hills, they sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Verse 7, he saw the tents of Cushon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Were you angry against the rivers or the indignation of the, against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheaf from your bow. Listen to all this warrior language. Calling for many arrows. And then the word Selah is there. He's like, pause and think about the significance of this. God, you split the rivers, the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they writhed. Raging water swept on. Deep gave forth its voice. And the, the deep, the oceans lifted up its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place of light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. And you marched through the earth in fury and you threshed the nations in anger. So now watch this. He praises before and the, the nature of the God who comes near. And now he talks about the presence of God when God comes among his people. So God came. Verse 5, and when he came, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his hill. And when God stood in verses 6 and 7, Habakkuk says there that God's stature is such that he can stand before the earth and measure its entirety. The earth is nothing before God. He is so big. And so as God looks down on the earth, his gaze is so exhausting that the nations and the mountains and the hills, they shook, they scattered, and they bow. His gaze on the earth is so fixed that the mountains fled and the ancient hills just collapsed before him. And so in verse 7 there, when it says the tents of Cushion and the curtains of the land of Midian, this is a reference to the people who lived. So you remember when Moses went up on the mountain? And the people are down below, and those 40 days were disastrous days where they made the golden calf. And it's just thunder and lightning, and God was speaking to Moses up on the mountain. On the other side of the mountain lived these people of Cushon and the Midianites. And they looked up on the mountain and went, what's going on up there? But they knew, they knew it better than God's people did. God is up there alive, speaking, working, moving in great power, and he stood. So they trembled. 
Kushan people and the Midianites. And then God went forth in action. And he went forth during the Exodus. And and Habakkuk begins to think upon the moments when God's might was seen as he dealt with water. And God just showed how powerful he was and all of that. Three times he mentions the word arrows. God is a warrior leading forth his people. He sees these moments, Habakkuk does, these God manifesting His might in the midst of them in their history for a safe passage for the nation. And He did His work by drawing His arrows and, and shooting them and clearing the way because He's a God of power and He's a God of might. And the nations are nothing before our God. And the rivers and the seas became God's tools for dividing the earth just as someone takes an arrow and, and shoots it and it cuts through the air to accomplish the warrior's purpose. The mountains shook as they saw God acknowledging His power. And the seas did as the psalmist described them. You ought to read this eventually. Psalm 77 verse 16 through 20 just talks about how the seas responded to the glory of God. So mighty is God's power that one day He said, Sun, stop. Moon, stop. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 10. So Habakkuk praises God for his powerful presence of leading the people. And then he acknowledges next, the fifth thing this morning is just, he has great praise for God's deliverance of the people. So verse 13, look, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And there's that word again, Selah, think about this. Pause. Think about God's power. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, and you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So now he praises. The song moves to a place where they sing about God's great deliverance and leading them out of Egypt. Peter said it like this in 1 Peter 2. He's speaking about New Testament age, but it has great reference to the Jewish people. Once you were not a people, but now you have become the people of God. And he had saved them. He had rescued them. He crushed the head of the house of the wicked. No nation can stop him. No leader can stop him. And so Habakkuk here just praises God for the salvation that he brought upon, upon his people. And before we move to our last point this morning, I just want to pose this question. When is the last time in every one of our lives that we authentically paused and we just overwhelmingly thanked God for the salvation that has been granted to us through his son, Jesus? We should sing about this. We should preach about this. We should talk about this. This great salvation. Now I know me. And I know a lot of you. And y'all are way worse sinners than I am. Most of you. And I pray for you often. One day. When this life is over. We will stand in the presence of King Jesus. And I think it's only going to be then that we realize 
how devastating and dark sin was and is. See, most of us think that we're good. But we are born in iniquity, we are born in darkness, and that's our bent. Old Testament says it. Paul writes about it in Romans. No one is good. No one seeks God. And it is amazing today that that we know Him today. And in a minute, we're going to stand and sing again, and we will lift our voices. We are lifting our hearts now and, and bending our heart to His truth. And we need to just consistently praise Him for the salvation that has come to us in Christ. That He had the power to overcome how deep and wicked we were in our very nature where we couldn't awaken ourselves. We could not save ourselves. We couldn't tip the scales of good works in our favor. We could not do anything. And yet when He came and He stepped upon the scene, Satan was defeated. We need to be a people that glories in our salvation. Now look at 16. Here's the last thing today. We need a priority of fearing God, of being all of God, of worshiping God in patience. So look at 16 with me. So Lord, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And I want you to note there that when he says that last line there, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Is he talking about Judah or is he talking about the Chaldean people? He's talking about the Chaldean people. So he's like, Lord, I'm going to have to wait for this and I'll wait for it for you to bring justice to those who practice injustice. So just a couple of thoughts here as we finish. We need to be the kind of people who fear God in deep-seated patience. I don't want a crystal ball, but sometimes I wish I could know what's coming, don't you? And we don't know. So what do we do? We get to a place like Habakkuk, who did know what was coming, and yet he teaches us what we do. We have to trust God and just wait. Because of this reason, back to the revival prayer, that the sovereignty of God is enough to know that he's in charge and that we can trust him. So he hears what God's doing. Did you note that? It devastates him physically. He's devastated physically where his legs can't hold him up anymore. He, when he starts to speak, you ever try to cry speak and your lips quiver 
and he can't do it. This is where he is. He's spiritually overwhelmed that now affects his body where he can't stand. And he knows this is coming. He knows God is good. He doesn't have all of the answers to it. And yet he knows this, Lord, I'm going to have to wait. And so, Lord, the wait is okay. And so I'll wait. And therefore, I will pray for future generations. Now, let me make clear. Waiting does not mean inactivity. Habakkuk didn't quit preaching, talking to people in Judah. So God's not asking us to just sit around and wait for the world to end. He wants us to pursue Him, know Him, share the gospel, go on mission trips, lead our families to follow the Lord, have have our marriages grounded in the the truth of God's Word. He, He wants us to be active in all of that as we wait for the King to return. We are active. And so it settles into his bones as difficult as it was for him to consider. He was done fighting God over this revelation. He wasn't going to complain anymore. And he would yield to God's words and God's coming ways. Now hear this. He could trust for this reason everything that he had just recounted in history. That because God had made a covenant with his people and God had been active, God is not going to forget his people even though he sends them away. He tells them already that he's going to let them return. And he would pour his grace upon them again. And through this rebellious people, this glorious one named Jesus of Nazareth came to the earth. The hope of the nations. So our waiting until God makes things right with people like the Chaldeans and the abortion industry and the sex trafficking, pornography, and on and on and on it goes. God is going to make all of that right and he will crush it. Because when he steps, pestilence and plague follow and it wipes out and the fire of his judgment will come. So we pray for that which is in line with God's nature and God's work. That's how we pray. We are to know our history of our faith. We are to know the history of Christianity. We are to know it. So tr- such tremendous resources out there. If you're moved today, you haters of history out there, come see me after church. I've got Christian history books, biographies on my shelf. I'll, I won't give it to you, but I'll loan it to you. To take home today. My life has been dramatically impacted by reading about Bonhoeffer and Luther and many people that have gone before us. We should know our history.
we need to be fully confident that God moves and he cannot be stopped. Cannot be stopped. That's what Habakkuk's prayer was. God, you came and you moved and nothing could stop you. So therefore we trust and we wait on the Lord. I'm going to read one more text. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I just want you to listen. So they come back, beginning at about the 70-year mark, really just under it. And they come back in three waves. They come back under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Don't name your son that. But he's an awesome guy. Nehemiah leads the last group back. Ezra leads the second group back. He's this priest. And the first group comes back and they begin to rebuild the temple under Zerubbabel's leadership. Ezra comes back. Once you have a temple, what do you need? You need the truth of God to be taught again and the practices of the Old Testament to be done again, the festivals, the feasts, the sacrifices. The last wave comes back under Nehemiah. And the walls around Jerusalem have been destroyed from way back when. Probably, my, I should know my history better, but 80 to 90 years after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the walls around Jerusalem, they still lay in ruin. And so Nehemiah hears this, and it's in his heart, I've got to go back and we've got to fix Jerusalem. And so he comes back and he does. And in one of the most remarkable construction feats in the history of the world, they do it really quick under the midst of tremendous opposition. And so now they've got a temple. They've got the word, the law again. The city of Jerusalem has been restored. And they gather. And this is what they did. And this is why until I breathe my last or I'm no longer your pastor, this is what we are to do. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And the people did this, listen to this. And the people told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So we're going to gather, Ezra, bring bring the book, bring the book of the law. We want this. It's an amazing thing where the pastor's forcing on the people, you've got to listen to this. It's an amazing thing when the people demand their leaders practice the word and they won't accept anything else but the word. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Now listen to this. This is one of my prayers that y'all one day would say, okay, don't do this. And he read from the law, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Just read it. I 
just want to hear the eternal words of God. He did this in the presence of men and women and those who could understand in the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. If you don't know where pulpits come from, they come from the book of Nehemiah. They built a wooden platform to be up so that they could speak and people could hear the word of the Lord. Beside him stood Mattath. I'm not going to read all these crazy names, okay? He had a lot of guys that stood beside him. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. I want you to hear that. About seven years ago, usually the last Sunday of every year, I'm not here. I haven't done that lately, but I used to do it. I would go to a church in McKinney just to see what's going on. And I went to a large church in our community about seven years ago, and the pastor came out and set his Bible on a piano, and he walked to the front, and he spoke for 40 minutes and never opened the Bible. And I kept looking at it over there, saying in my heart, will you please go get that book and put it in your hands? Please put it in your hands. And he never did. And I've lost my place. Hang on here. I want you to hear what they did. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all of the people stood. What you think about that? Hundreds of thousands of people standing. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, and lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And they read from the book the law of God. It's a bunch of other guys kind of out there. So Ezra would read and there were people out in the crowd who would give explanation to what he's reading because they wanted everybody to understand what was being read. So this is what verse 8 means. Well, let me, go, let me just go back, sorry. And Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. And they read from the book the law of God clearly And they gave the sense, they gave understanding so that the people understood the reading. I share that this morning as we finish for this reason. Habakkuk was never going to see that day. And yet for him, he was going to say, okay, God, if this is what your plan is, My agenda is you, God, and so if I'm never going to see it in my lifetime, and my grandchildren will, and my friends will in the future, I will accept the work of your hand today. I will accept it. And I wonder, where are the Habakkuk's today? And who is willing to work through our intellectual issues to come to a place of trusting God?
and acknowledging the wonder and the glory of who he is. Where is Habakkuk today? Let's pray.